I should like to call your attention this morning to the first statement, the first phrase, the first question in the 15th verse of that fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, which we read together at the beginning. Where is then the blessedness he spake of? Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? Now, I call your attention to that question addressed by the Apostle in this way to the members of this church or these churches in Galatia in order that uh, we may consider together another cause of uh, what may be described as spiritual depression or unhappiness in the Christian life. We've been engaged now for a number of months on these Sunday mornings in considering this condition, holding as we do and as we do increasingly that the main problem today in a religious sense lies within the church and not outside the church. We conceive it to be our first duty to discover the causes of the depressed condition of so many Christian people. For we start from this basic assumption that when the church is healthy, when the church is alive, when the church is as she should be and as she was in the early days of the New Testament at the beginning, well then, she invariably does have an impact upon the world and causes people to pay attention and to listen. So that the high road to revival always is to start in the church and with the life of those who claim to be Christian. Nothing does greater harm to the gospel of Christ than a depressed Christian, an uncertain and unhappy Christian, indeed a miserable Christian. So we have been examining at our leisure the various causes of this, alas, far too common condition. And we have discovered that there are a large number of them. And that for each one, there is in the scripture somewhere the appropriate remedy, the appropriate treatment. Now, this morning we come to another of these causes. The whole of this epistle to the Galatians rarely deals with this one question. These Galatians had listened to the preaching of the gospel by the apostle Paul. They were pagans, most of them. They were outside God, they had no knowledge whatsoever of him and of his son and of the great Christian salvation. But the Apostle Paul had come and had preached to them and they had received the message and the gospel with great joy. He describes even in detail their joy uh, when they had first met him and when he had first preached to them. It's quite clear that the Apostle, when he was there, was not well physically, there can be very little doubt that he had some kind of acute exacerbation of that eye trouble with which he was troubled and uh, afflicted for so long. Because as he reminds them here, uh, that uh, when he was with them, they would have plucked out their own eyes and have given them to him if that could have helped him. They were not uh, in any way disturbed by his appearance. One gathers that this painful inflammatory condition of his eyes from which the apostle suffered was rather offensive and repulsive even to look at. His eyes were red and probably contained a good deal of pus 
There was nothing prepossessing in any case about the appearance of the apostle. As he reminds the church at Corinth, his presence was weak. He was not what is called today a great personality, a very ordinary man to look at, apparently. And in addition, he'd got this eye trouble which almost rendered him offensive to them, as he here reminds them. They were not in any way, he says, my temptation which was in my flesh, he despised not, nor rejected. In spite of that, they received him as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And they had rejoiced in this wonderful salvation. But they were no longer like that. They've become unhappy. He's able to ask this very question directly. Where is then the blessedness he spake of? They were unhappy themselves. They'd turned almost against the apostle. And their whole condition was one which was so depressed that he can even use this sort of language. My little children of whom I travel in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now, this is a very striking change, isn't it? Indeed, the apostle has been saying this many times in the earlier parts of his letter to them. In the sixth verse of the first chapter, he puts it at once like this. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. And then he puts it again in the third verse, oh, in the third chapter, in the first verse, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Now, without adducing further evidence, I think it's clear, is it not, that these Galatian Christians, who had been so happy, so rejoicing, in their newfound salvation, had now become spiritually unhappy and depressed. And that is the sole reason why the apostle writes to them. Well, now then, the question confronting us is this. What was the cause of this change? What had happened to them? What had gone wrong? And the answer is perfectly simple. It can be put in in one phrase. It was all entirely due to false teaching. That was the problem in the churches of Galatia. All their troubles had emanated from a certain false teaching which these people had believed and had espoused. Now, this is something which is dealt with very frequently in the New Testament. Indeed, there is scarcely a single New Testament epistle but that you will find that this aspect of the matter is raised and dealt with somewhere or another. These infant Christian churches were being much troubled by certain types of teachers who followed round the Apostle Paul and imitated his manner in so many respects. They went round the very circuits that he'd gone round himself. And they went and they taught this particular teaching of theirs. And the result was not only to cause confusion in the churches, but to lead to this depressed and unhappy and miserable condition in the lives of so many Christian people. Now, there is no question at all that this was, of course, the work of the devil. The apostle doesn't hesitate to say so, and many times. He says that the devil can even transform himself into an angel of light. 
And he attacks Christian people and he insinuates these false ideas into their minds and the result is that for the time being he may wreck entirely their Christian testimony and rob them of their happiness. Of course, the history of the Christian church since the end of the New Testament canon is full of exactly the same thing. Here it is, it began almost at once and it has continued more or less ever since. And thus, in a sense, it is true to say that the history of the Christian church is in many ways the history of the rising of many a heresy and many an error, the battle of the church against such and the delivery of the church by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, this is obviously a very great subject. I can but introduce it and touch upon it this morning. False teaching can take many, many different forms. But we can divide them into two main sections. Sometimes it takes the form of a blank denial of the truth and of the cardinal principles and tenets of the Christian faith. Now, let's be quite clear about that. Sometimes I say it can take that form. It can still represent itself as Christian, but in actual fact it is a denial of the Christian message. That was partly the case in, the, in, 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 in this instance of Galatia. But it has certainly been the case many times since then. There have been teachers who have called themselves Christian who have even denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But still they've called themselves Christian. Sometimes then I say it can take a blank denial of the very cardinal foundational principles of our faith. But it doesn't always take that form. It has another form. And the second one is the one to which I want to advert more particularly this morning. For in a sense this second form is even more dangerous than the first. And this second form is the form that it had taken in particular amongst the churches of Galatia. Here it is not so much a denial of the faith. Here it isn't so much uh, a contradiction of the cardinal elements and tenets of the faith. It's rather this. It, it is a teaching which suggests that something else is required in addition to what we've already believed. That was the peculiar form which it took in the case of Galatia. These uh, teachers, these false teachers who had gone round after the Apostle Paul had left these churches and were normally described as the Judaizing teachers, the Judaizers, they went round and they said this. They said, yes, you've believed the gospel. You've believed Paul's preaching. That's perfectly right. Everything he said, they said, was right. But he didn't go far enough. He left out something that was absolutely vital. And that vital something was circumcision. They said, yes, hold on to everything you believe. But if you want to be true Christians, in addition, you must be circumcised. That was the essence of their teaching. Now, it's not at all difficult to see and to understand how that particular teaching came in. The first Christians of all, after all, were Jews. You can read about them in the Gospels, you can read about them in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And, let's be quite fair to them, it's very easy to understand their whole situation. They knew that their old religion was something that had been given by God. And they realized that it was true. 
their difficulty was how to understand the new teaching in the light of their old and traditional teaching. They knew that circumcision had been given by God to Abraham and that it had been continued ever since. But here now was a new teaching which says that that is no longer necessary. That that old distinction between Jew and Gentile had been abolished. That circumcision was something temporary. That now there is a new position. Now they were unhappy about this. They were not unhappy about Gentiles coming in. At first even that was a difficulty to them. You remember that even the Apostle Peter himself found that rather difficult. And it was only when God gave him a vision from heaven that he was prepared for receiving Cornelius and his household and other Gentiles into the Christian church. But he'd been satisfied, and others had been satisfied. And yet being satisfied on the admission of the Gentiles, they couldn't quite see how a Gentile could be a Christian unless at the same time he became a Jew also. They could see that Christianity was the logical outcome of Judaism, but they couldn't quite see how a man could come into it without going via Judaism. That was their heresy. That was their teaching. So they'd gone to these Gentile Christians in Galatia and had suggested to them that if they were to be truly Christian, they must also submit to circumcision. They must put themselves, as it were, under the law first. Now that's the theme which the Apostle deals with in this epistle to the Galatians. And you can't read it without being moved. You can't read it without being gripped. He's writing at white heat. He's writing with passion. He's so concerned about this that he even leaves out his customary preliminary salutation. He doesn't thank them for anything as he normally does. He doesn't praise them. At once, having just opened his letter, he plunges into it. And by asking that question in the sixth verse, I marvel that he has so soon removed. Why does he feel this passion? Why is he so moved? Why is he writing at white heat? Well, the answer is, of course, that he feels, as he makes so plain and clear throughout the letter, that the whole Christian standing and position of these people was at stake. And that unless they saw the truth of this matter, their whole Christian position might very well be in jeopardy. There is no letter, therefore, in which the Apostle speaks with such vehemence. We are living in an age which doesn't like vehemence, I know, but the Apostle was vehement. Listen to this. Though we, he says, are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. You'll never read anything more vehement than that. He repeats it. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that he have received, let him be accursed. That's the way in which he wrote. No spirit of sweet reasonableness. No tendency to say, well, it doesn't matter that these people don't say exactly what I say, that they're adding something on, doesn't matter, we're all Christians together. Not at all. There is a divine kind of intolerance here. Because as he suggests and teaches, the whole position is really involved in this Galatian heresy. Well, now, my friends, I'm obviously calling your attention to this, not because we take some kind of antiquarian interest in the this ancient heresy in Galatia. I'm calling attention to it because of its relevance to us today. 
that is the glory of the New Testament. It's not an academic book. It's the most practical book. It's the most up-to-date book. It's the contemporary book. There is no single problem or heresy that is described in the New Testament, but that you'll find it in some shape or form in the church at this moment. And we are engaged not in an academic discussion of a spiritual depression. We are talking about ourselves. We are talking to one another. And it is because these things are still with us. And because the Galatian heresy in a modern form is still with us that I'm calling your attention to it. There are many Christian people who have passed through exactly these stages. They've heard the truth for the first time. They were amazed and astounded at it. They said, I never knew that that was Christianity. They're delighted. They receive it with joy and they experience amazing blessings. But subsequently they're confronted by some other teaching. They may, in their folly, have sought it, or it may have come to them without their seeking it. Somebody may have approached them, have given them a book or a pamphlet, or have suggested that they go and listen somewhere. And so they're introduced to another kind of teaching. And uh, at once this other teaching appeals to them because it appears to be so scriptural. Oh no, they say, we don't deny anything that you've believed and anything you've heard, but they say, you haven't had it all. There's something further. And it produces the Bible, and it quotes its scripture, and its books are about the Bible. Apparently, they are the people who stand for the Bible more than anybody else. And here it is put to these young Christians and others, and uh, it seems to appeal to them. Because of its scriptural character, and because it promises uh, such uh, unusual blessings, if they but believe it and despise it. And so they take it up. And then they find themselves unhappy and confused. Many are unhappy and confused without taking it up. They don't actually take it up, but they're disturbed by it, and they're rendered unhappy. They say, well, I, I can't answer this. I'm not quite sure about this. And, and their joy seems to go, and they're in a state of perplexity, and they don't quite know what's happening. They say, it's one of those two positions. I say they're, they're either made unhappy by the mere contemplation of it, or they actually espouse it, but still they lose their first happiness. Now it is no part of my understanding of the preaching of the gospel to mention particular teachings as such. I'm sure that you're all familiar with what I have in my mind, and yet it seems to me that on this occasion I must mention certain just as illustrations, not that I propose to deal with them in detail. The Roman Catholic Church has often done the very thing I'm describing. You get it also among such movements as Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists. You get it sometimes with teaching even about uh, adult baptism, or so-called believer's baptism, which must be by immersion. You get it uh, sometimes in terms of... Um, the absolute necessity of speaking with tongues if you're to be sure that you've received the Holy Spirit. And you get it sometimes in connection with healing, physical healing. Well, those are but illustrations. There are many others. I'm simply mentioning these things in order that we all may realize that this is very practical, that it's not a theoretical remote discussion, but that we are surrounded by these things and that they all partake of the character of the Galatian heresy in the way that I'm about to show you. Because here, it seems to me, the apostle laid down once and forever the great principles. 
which we must ever carry in our minds if we want to safeguard ourselves against these dangers and make quite sure that we are standing fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath set us free. That's his great exhortation. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. It was his love of these people. He was like a father to a child, as he tells them here. It wasn't that he, the apostle, was pedantic, or that he was self-centered and egotistical and individualistic. No, no. His only concern is the life, the spiritual life and welfare of these people. My little children, he said. Is almost a mother to them, of whom I travel again in birth until Christ be formed in you. And it is in that spirit that I'm calling to your attention to this subject. God knows I'd infinitely prefer not to do so. I've already reminded you that we're living in an age which doesn't like this sort of thing. The tendency today is to say, what's it matter? Let's all be together if we use the name of Christ anyhow, somehow. And this particularizing and this defining is abhorrent, uh, less not only to those outside the church, but to those who are inside the church. I do it, therefore, with great reluctance that I should be betraying what I believe to be my call of God into the Christian ministry if I didn't uh, expand the Scriptures and try to teach the Word of God as it is before us whatever the modern attitude and the modern opinion may chance to be. Very well, then, how do we face this kind of position? Well, the first thing the Apostle lays down is the question of authority. That must of necessity be the first thing. These problems are not a matter of feeling, they're not a matter of experiences, they must never be judged merely by results. False teaching can make people very happy, let's be quite clear about that. If you judge in terms of feelings and experiences and results only, well, then you'll find that every cult and every heresy that the church and the world have ever known can justify themselves in terms of results. It is the most fallacious test of all. No, no, we must start with the question of authority. And what is the authority? Well, as I've already reminded you, the apostle gives it us in the first chapter. Indeed, the question of authority is the thing he deals with in the first two chapters. Obviously, the apostle's own personal position was involved and was on trial. And that is why, perforce, he has to say so much about himself and about his conversion. I do commend you to read and to study carefully these first two chapters at your leisure. The apostle takes up this position. He says that he can defy anyone to preach any other gospel but this. He says, if I myself, or even an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. Why? Well, this is his basis. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men, for I neither received it of men, neither was I taught it by men, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to give his experience of how he came into the ministry. He says, you have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jewish religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And on and on he went on till that dramatic moment on the road to Damascus. And God in Christ called him and set him into the ministry. He knew he'd been separated from his mother's womb. He was given his commission and his message. 
by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Ah, yes, but he knew something more than that. Though he had come into the ministry in this rather unique way and is able to describe himself in writing to the Corinthians as one born out of due time, a kind of ectopic, uh, he nevertheless says, the gospel that was given to me was exactly the same gospel that was given to the others also. When he met the other apostles who had been with the Lord in the days of his flesh, when he went up and spoke to them at Jerusalem, he found that he was preaching exactly the same gospel as they also were preaching. Though it's come to him in this individual way as a direct revelation, the others were preaching precisely the same thing as he was preaching himself. Very well then, there I say is the basis of authority. And that is the authority that the apostle pleads here and argues. He says it isn't a question of one man saying this and the other man saying that. He says, I'm not preaching what I think. It was given to me. It was given to the other apostles. We're all saying the same thing. The test of truth is its apostolicity. Is it or is it not the apostolic message? That is the test and that is the standard. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as announced and taught in the New Testament, claims nothing less than that, that it comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who gave it to these men, and they preached it, and they wrote it, and caused it to be written, and here is our only standard. And, my friends, it is still the only standard. We have no standard at all apart from the New Testament. And therefore we must take every teaching or any point of view and bring it and hold it in the light of this. And as we do so, that we, we shall find that these false teachings are always guilty along one of two lines. The first is that they may be less than the apostolic message. Let's be perfectly clear about this. There is an apostolic message, I say. There is a deposit of truth. There is that which was agreed by all the apostles and preached by them all. There is the message. Now then, false teaching may be guilty of being less than the message. It leaves certain things out. And this is something which trips so many Christians today. If a man says something violently wrong, they can see it at once. But if he doesn't say things, they don't, they're not concerned about it. They don't see that. But I say it may be less than the apostolic message. It may be less with regard to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may deny his deity, his unique deity. It may deny the truth about two natures in one person and yet unmixed. It may deny the virgin birth. It may deny the miraculous in his life. It may deny the literal physical resurrection and still call itself Christian. It's less than the truth. Or it may deny the work of Christ. It may deny the fact that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It may describe the death of Christ as just a marvelous exhibition of love, uh, the, the, the perfect example of a passive resistor, a pacifist or something like that. It denies that God laid on him the iniquity of us all and punished our sins in his body on the tree. That is what the apostles preached, that Christ died for our sins. It doesn't say that. It leaves it out. It's less than the apostolic truth. 
And likewise with the rebirth so often, which he doesn't believe and which he doesn't emphasize. And likewise sometimes even with conduct and behavior. Because the New Testament emphasizes conduct and behavior, let's be perfectly fair on both sides. There are people who say they believe in Christ, they would have agreed with everything I've said hitherto, but they seem to deduce this from it, that if you believe in Christ, it doesn't matter what you do. That terrible sin of antinomianism, that appalling error and heresy of antinomianism. The New Testament teaches the importance of works. Faith without works, it says, is dead. You prove your faith by your works. Now, to leave out any one of these things is to give less than the apostolic message. But the special danger in the case of Galatia, as we've already seen, was the opposite, namely of adding to the truth. Saying, yes, the apostolic message is right, but if you want to be a real Christian, put a plus behind it, add something onto it. Now then, this is the thing I say that we have to deal with in particular. But let us be clear that we've got that first principle. Every teaching is to be tested by the teaching of the New Testament. Not by feelings, not by experiences, not by results, not by what other people are doing and saying. The whole world may virtually be going after it, and you may have to stand alone like Martin Luther. Doesn't, don't worry about that. Here's the test. Apostolicity. The New Testament teaching. Then another very good test is this. Always be careful to work out the implications of a teaching. Now, that is what the Apostle does partly in this second chapter of this great epistle to the Galatians. He works it out in detail. You see, this new teaching appeared not to be denying Christ at all. And yet the Apostle is able to show very plainly and clearly that he denies him at the most vital point of all. He even had to do that, he tells us, with the Apostle Peter at Antioch. Peter, who had been given the vision and who had apparently seen these things so clearly, he was influenced subsequently by the Jews and dissimulated and felt that he couldn't eat with Gentiles. He had to separate himself and be with the Jews only. And Paul points out to him, Peter, he says, you're denying justification by faith. Now, Peter didn't realize that and Peter didn't want to do that. Peter never intended to deny Christ or his salvation by Christ, but the apostle shows him that the real implication of his position is that he is denying that. He's saying that something else is necessary. Well, therefore, I say, let us work out always the implications of what we believe. Oh, can I give you an illustration to show you what I mean? Somebody, I was discussing this matter with a few days ago somewhere, uh, was in difficulty about this point. Uh, this person couldn't see how certain people who really lived very good lives and very noble lives, uh, she, uh, she said, I can't see how you can say that they're not Christians. I know they don't believe in Christ and they don't go to church, but look at their lives. Now, she was a good Christian woman. She was really troubled about these people because they were such good people. But I said, wait a minute. Don't you see the implication of what you're saying? I said, what you are really saying is this, that those people are so good and so excellent and so noble that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is unnecessary in their case. The coming of the Son of God from heaven to earth was unnecessary for them. They can do it on their own. He needn't have died upon the cross. They can reconcile themselves to God by their good works and their good lives. I said, can't you see that by liking these people and falling into that argument, you're really saying that Christ and his death are unnecessary. The implication, and she saw it. 
Work out the implications, my friends. Don't stop with the thing at its face value. Say, what does this really mean then? What is this really saying? Very well, that's the second principle. But let me hurry on to the third, in which I want to put to you some of the special characteristics of this particular heresy as it is expounded in the epistle to the Galatians. First, it is always an addition to revelation. This preaching about circumcision is not a part of Christ's message, says Paul. These people who preached that to you didn't get it from Christ. Christ, when he gave me the message, didn't say that all people must be circumcised. It isn't a part of his revelation. It's an addition to it. It is an addition to the apostolic message. Now, I think you'll find that this is a characteristic of all this type of heresy uh, with which we are dealing this morning. Take, for instance, the Roman Catholic claim. The Roman Catholic Church claims this that she is as much inspired today as were these first apostles. She's got no basis for, for saying that in Scripture. She says that herself. This is a subsequent revelation that has been given to the church. You see, the Roman Catholic Church, quite openly and plainly, there is no subtlety about it, she says it actually, that tradition is equal in authority with the Scriptures. That the church herself is as authoritative as the Word. That's why you've got to take the last word, the pronouncement ex cathedra of the Pope. He is as inspired as were the apostles. It's an addition to this revelation. It's true of all of them, of course, not only of the Roman Catholic Church. Before you accept any one of these teachings, my friend, always take the trouble to read about their origins. And you'll find that almost invariably there's something like this. How did these movements come into being? Well, somebody or another had a vision. I say this not for your amusement, but as a simple fact. In the vast majority of cults and such movements, it is a vision that has come to a woman. Read the histories. The teaching is based upon a woman. The, the, the apostle says that he suffers not a woman to teach. That doesn't seem to matter. But not only that, but the woman has had a vision. A vision. Some special revelation has been given. Oh, they say, I know you don't find that in the scriptures, but it's been given directly to this person from God and by God. You see, they're adding something to the revelation that we have here. It's something further. It's something more advanced. They claim that they are as inspired today as were these apostles of Jesus Christ. And they base their authority on that. Apply that test, I say, to most of these teachings. You'll find it'll be true. But remember this, that it is true of many who are still within the ranks of the Christian church who take this sort of view of the scriptures. Oh, yes, they say those men were inspired, but they say men are still inspired. They say Browning is inspired, Wordsworth is inspired, any poet can be inspired, and the men today who interpret the scriptures are inspired. They say we don't deny inspiration. What we do deny is that it's stopped at the end of the New Testament canon. It's going on. So you can add to truth. And as the centuries pass, the truth grows and becomes much more wonderful, and special things are being revealed to us with all our modern learning in the 20th century. That's adding to the revelation. That means that the scripture is no longer your ultimate test. Modern scholarship must be added in addition. 
or the modern men and the modern outlook, the modern conditions, that's further revelation. It's always true of them, as it was in the case of the Galatian heresy. Another characteristic always is this, that these teachings always emphasize some one thing in particular and give great prominence to it. Here in the case of Galatia, it was circumcision. We'll be considering next Sunday morning, God willing, something else, philosophy, but here it's circumcision. And it is this one thing that has led to the movement, this is one thing that has led to the teaching and the special instruction. This one thing is the mainspring and the inspiration of the entire movement. Yes, they see you're quite all right, but in addition, this one thing, seventh day, or immersion, believer, tongues, healing, something else, this one thing, that's the big thing, it's always in the prominent position at the center. And you're more conscious of that one thing than you are of Christ. Because the emphasis is on that. There wouldn't have been a movement but for this one thing, circumcision, whatever form it may take. Then the third point I've already mentioned, which is that all these things are always in addition to Christ. Yes, says the Roman Catholic Church, of course you must believe in Christ, and they're orthodox in their beliefs concerning him. That isn't the trouble. But you must also believe in the church. You must also believe in the Virgin Mary. You must believe in the saints. You must believe in a priesthood. In addition to. From the sheer standpoint of orthodox doctrinal and theology, doctrinal belief and theology, I find myself nearer the Roman Catholic Church than many within the ranks of Protestantism. But where I part company and must part is this, that they put this fatal plus after Christ. Christ plus the church, the virgin, the priests, the saints, and so on. Christ alone is not enough, and he doesn't stand in all his unique, solitary glory at the center. And I say it is the same with all the others. You must have some special experience. You must have some particular belief about observing days, as the apostle puts it, and so on. You must undergo some special rite or some special sacrament. Oh, it's Christ plus always. And you must have this addition if you're to have the true experience. Or oh, let me hurry on to put it in this way in the fourth place. It always means in some shape or form that faith alone is not enough. The apostle puts that plainly in the sixth verse of the fifth chapter. Listen to him. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. They're always telling us that we must do something ourselves. We must add something on. We must add on some belief or some action on our own part or allow something to be done to us. Faith isn't enough. We don't stand by faith. Justification by faith is gone. He are fallen from grace, says Paul in that sense, to these Galatians. And all who are guilty of these things can be charged with the same charge. In other words, faith in Christ and the simplicity that is in Christ is not enough. We've got to add some sort of work and we've got to be doing some special something before we get this great experience. But lastly, let me point out this to you and often I thank God for this last test because it's been such a help to me. 
To believe any such teaching always means to deny former Christian experience. Where is the blessedness he spake of? Do you know what he means by that? He means this. He says, foolish Galatians, beloved Galatians. Are you really telling me that what you experienced when I first came amongst you was fraud? Was of no value? Was all that nonsense? Was all that incomplete? Where is the blessedness he spake of? O oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? This only I would learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? You know you received the Spirit. Go back, remember, you did receive the Spirit. Did you get that by the works of the law? Did you get that because you were circumcised? Of course you didn't. You hadn't been circumcised. It was by the hearing of faith alone. Can't you see, he says, you're denying your own past experience. And these teachings are all guilty of that. That is what the Apostle points out in his statement about his argument with Peter at Antioch in the second chapter. He says, Peter, you're going back on the biggest thing in your life. It's his whole argument about Abraham. Abraham, he said, was blessed not after circumcision, but before circumcision. You can't say circumcision is essential. Even Abraham, the originator of it all, he had his great blessing before, not after. The thing, circumcision was not essential to the blessing. You're denying his experience. Oh, how often I say, have I found this argument to be of value? You read these teachings and they're subtle, they're specious, they're attractive. And you feel, well, now this is it, this must be right. Then this is the thing that often holds you. You say to yourself, ah, there was, for instance, a man like George Whitfield or John Wesley, undoubtedly filled of the Spirit, used in amazing and mighty manner by God, one of the outstanding saints of God and one of God's greatest servants. I look at them, Whitfield and Wesley and Kelvin and Luther and Pascal and Knox and all the great, mighty array of the greatest servants of God the world has ever known. And I find that they observed the first day of the week and not the seventh. I find that they were not baptized when they were adults and in a particular manner. I find they never spoke with tongues. I find that they didn't hold healing meetings and so on. My friends, are we to say that all these men were lacking in knowledge and in experience? Can't you see that these new teachings, which claim so much, are denying Christian experience throughout the ages and the centuries? They're virtually saying that truth has only come to them. And for 1900 years, practically, the church dwelt in ignorance and in darkness. The thing is monstrous. The thing is pathetic, my friends. We must realize that these things are to be tested in this way. Where is the blessedness? Never believe in anything that invalidates your own experience or the great experience of the Christian church throughout the ages and the centuries. Reject it. It cannot be true. But that brings me to the last word and the final test, which is just this. Having gone through all this, I'm sure you're all ready to join with me in saying what was said by the Apostle himself in the 17th verse of the last chapter. Henceforth, he says, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. 
This is what he means. Listen. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Stop talking to me, he says, about circumcision or uncircumcision. I'm not interested. Stop talking to me about your seventh day or your first day, or any other particular days. Stop talking to me about all these things that are absolute essentials if I am to be a complete Christian. I don't want them. God forbid that I should glory. I'll make my boast in nothing and in no one, nor in any special teaching, save in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone. And he's enough. Because by him the world has been crucified to me, and I am crucified unto the world. Let me put it plainly. I will not make my boast, I will not glory, even in my orthodoxy. For even that can be a snare if I make a god of it. I will glory only in that blessed person himself, by whom this great thing has been done, with whom I died, with whom I've been buried, with whom I am dead to sin and alive to God, with whom I've risen, with whom I'm seated in the heavenly places, by whom and by whom alone the world is crucified unto me, and I am crucified unto the world. My friend, anything that wants to come into the center instead of him, anything that wants to add itself onto him, I say reject it. The apostolic message concerning Jesus Christ in all its directness, its simplicity, and its glory. God forbid that we or any one of us should add anything to it. Let us rejoice in him, in all his fullness, and in him alone. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.